0: Well, again, this is the beginning of Advent 2019 and it's always a good chance for us to remind ourselves of a couple, th- couple things. One, we use the church calendar as a tool, a tool of our maybe personal piety, but also of our church piety. It's good for us to remember to have dates set, seasons of fasting, and seasons of feasting. But of course, we don't hold to these things as law. They are tools It's a tool for us to refocus ourselves, maybe uh, to be used, again, in our personal uh, devotional life. Uh, So these things are good for us. So I want to say that because sometimes in the PCA, there are some churches that hold uh, uh, um, strongly to the church calendar. There are others who don't have, it doesn't have any bearing upon uh, their church year. And we find ourselves somewhere in the middle, and that's a good thing, uh, where we recognize the value of these things, but of course don't. Uh, hold to it as, as law, whether it's special services or, or uh, whatever. But we do take this time in the season of Advent uh, uh, from year to year to focus ourselves. And Advent is a time of longing. It's a time of expectation, looking forward to the feast, if you will, of Christmas. Advent is a time for us to remember two things. One, it's a chance for us to remember backwards and also it's a chance for us to remember forwards. But we remember back, of course, to the longing that Israel had for their coming Savior. And so oftentimes in season of Advent, we will step into Old Testament texts. Of course, that's what we're doing this year because we're in the Old Testament in our study. But we'll step back into Old Testament texts and identify with the longings of Israel as they were looking forward to their coming Messiah. And so that's a great thing to do in the season of Advent because we're also looking forward to the celebration of Christmas. So we place ourselves, some, in some ways, in a historical state, going back and looking forward to the coming of Christ. But we also do this recognizing that that's not where we are in real history. In real history, we are on the other side of Christ. We stand with Christ behind us, his first coming. And yet, we identify with the Old Testament saints because we, too, are looking forward to his coming. And so the season of Advent is traditionally a time of, again, remembering back, and kind of preparing the ground for the celebration of the birth of our Savior. But perhaps even more importantly, Advent is a time of remembering forward. That is, remembering what is to come. Remembering that Christ is going to return. And we ought not grow weary in the waiting. As Israel did. And were unprepared for the coming of their Master when he came back to the house. And we ought not to do that. So we look back to look Forward. And this is the, the, the time we're in in the church. It's always, every Christian Sunday is really a, a chance of looking back so that we might also look forward. So I want to remind you, one, of how we use the church calendar here. If you uh, are interested, of course, you can just Google um, uh, um, Advent readings and make good use of the season of Advent. Again, as a personal uh, tool of, uh, for your own devotional life. To look, and many of the readings, particularly within the Book of Common Worship, will be readings that will do that for you. The the Church in its liturgical readings, and we're not following those this year, Sunday to Sunday, because we are in a particular thematic study of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, but if you go look at the lectionary readings in the, if you just Google liturgical year uh, and Advent uh, readings, those readings generally do a pretty good job of giving you Old Testament readings looking forward to the first coming and New Testament readings that, give you, uh, that point you to the second coming. So just as a little pastoral direction there, if you want to make use of this season of Advent, I encourage you to look up those readings and maybe use those uh, throughout the season. As I said, though, however, we, have been in the, we are in the middle of a study of Christ in the Old Testament, and I mentioned to you earlier that we've skipped over certain texts and as the church calendar calls for, we'll actually go back and pick up some of the ones we skipped over, and that's what we're doing today. We're hopping back now to Genesis chapter 4. Yes, we've already gone over that in that we've done chapter 3, and then we jumped to the story of Noah. But today we're going back because we're going to consider over the next four Sundays some Old Testament birth narratives and, uh, and use those to point us forward to the expectation and the hope of the birth of Christ our Savior. So today we come to uh, this first birth narrative, though we just get, it, uh, just get it very briefly in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So we're thinking about the story of Cain and Abel, but of course in, in such a way, again, that we don't simply turn this into a, a, a historical study or a moral study, but in one that prepares for our celebration of Christ. Well, let's set the context for ourselves again in this story. You will remember that uh, I I don't think I need to give you much uh, prodding in remembering the stories that have come before this. They're pretty familiar. But as you know, Adam and Eve have blown it big time, right? Uh, God set them up as his image bearers. They were to rule over the earth. But to start with the garden, let's start there. (laughs) We'll start within the garden and and then let's subdue that. There's not much to subdue in the garden, but we'll, we'll work on, on that, and then it will expand to the world because I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, not just the garden. And I want you to subdue the earth, not just the garden, and to rule over it. But the garden is a time of testing. The garden is a place of probation, if you will. A time of, hey, let's start here in the classroom, and then we can move out to the world. But the one thing that needed to be subdued made its way into the garden, namely the serpent, and they start with that, and they could not subdue that, but rather they were subdued by it. They cave very quickly to the temptation that the serpent offers to be God, and they grasp after what God had promised in due time, but they grasp after it immediately, refusing to trust in him, and of course at that moment everything falls apart. And God comes and he questions them. Where are you all? You know, and they're, they're hiding in the bushes. Uh, and the, um, the omniscient God questions where they are. And then questions them. What happened here? Who told you you were naked? how did this happen to you? And we know immediately everything's falling apart. They're blaming everybody. They're blaming God. This is the woman you gave me. It's because of the serpent that you allowed in, the, in this garden. <clears throat> and the Lord stands them up and administers the curse, the judgment to them. Starting with the serpent. And then to Eve, who was told that she is going to have great pain in childbirth, that being a parent is going to be brutally difficult, and you're going to have problems in your marriage also. And then to Adam, uh, you're going to work the ground, but it's going to fight back. And ultimately, while I called you to subdue the earth, in the end, the earth will subdue you, and you will return to dust. This is, the, this is the judgment that he gave to them. But prior to the judgment he gave them, he brings his judgment upon the serpent. And it's very gracious of the Lord to start with the serpent because he curses the serpent in the earshot of Adam and Eve. So before they get their curses, they hear the curse to the serpent. And so their curse is kind of uh, couched in the curse to the serpent. And this is important because, as you remember, the curse to the serpent includes blessing for them. The curse to the serpent was, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. Now, she's thinking there, when when Adam and Eve hear this, they must have thought, our seed? The Lord said, the day you eat, you will surely die. But now he's saying we're going to have offspring. That's good news. (laughs) Okay, so, so immediately, they haven't heard their curse yet, but they've heard the serpent's And included in there is the fact that they're going to have offspring. They're surely going to die, but they're not immediately going to die. Death is a certainty for them. It's just not going to be immediate. In there, of course, is the idea that the Lord is going to set everything right. I'm going to restore enmities where they belong. But it is going to come through uh, some hostility. It's going to come through a conflict. There's going to be a crushing of a head. There's going to be the bruising of a heel. There's going to be enmity between the two seeds. There's going to be enmity between the two offspring, between your seed and her seed. So there's going to be conflict. But in the end, there's going to be resolution and enmities will will be restored and friendships and alliances will be restored and all will go be, be, be well. So all of that is there and then their curses are couched in that. Which brings us to chapter 4 because if you can place yourself in Eve's, you know, in Eve, uh, Adam and Eve's situation and you're thinking, okay, I heard this is going to be rough, but I did hear that our offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent and everything is going to be restored. And then you have Cain. You're thinking, it's all, it's all falling into place. It's all, the, the promises of God are falling right into place here. He promised that we would have an offspring. Our offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent and restore everything back. I, this was rough, but maybe it's not as rough as I thought it was going to be because, bang, here we go, and we're off to the races, and I can't wait to see what the Lord does through my beloved son Cain. And then, oh yeah, there's Abel too, and that's great too, but Cain, the seed of the woman, or so they thought. But, of course, you know the story, and you know that rather than than Cain crushing the head of the serpent, he crushes the head of his brother, and the whole thing falls apart. And what seemed like it was all falling into place so nicely, uh, we realize, oh boy, this is much more complex than we thought, and this is going to be a longer road than we thought, and much longer indeed. So, again, the story is one that we're very familiar with, <clears throat> but... We want to take these stories and use them as lenses by which we are driven forward to see the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just think about the story quickly. I want to think about four things, the offering, the warning, the sin, and the exile. So let's think about the offering. We're told that she has uh, the sons she bore again, Abel, and we're told what their vocations were. Abel's a shepherd. Cain is a farmer. Uh, he's raising crops. Uh, uh, Abel is managing the sheep uh, uh, tending to the sheep as a shepherd and then we're told in verse 3 and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering so interesting that the the offering here is initiated by Cain at least in the story we don't know had they been giving offerings Uh, we don't know there's no command to give offerings Uh, there's no command to make sacrifices at least that we have yet It's just that, and Cain brought an offering to the Lord. And so did Abel. And when you're reading initially on this, there's nothing really of any alarm. No red flags go up. And Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. There's nothing really there that makes you go, oh, how dare he? (laughs) Or, well, obviously that's not going to be accepted by the Lord. You know, uh, all is fine. He brings an offering. And then Abel brings an offering. Now, when Abel's offering comes, you start to get a little hint as to the difference. It's like when, when you have nothing to compare Abel, uh, Cain's sacrifice or his offering uh, to, n- again, no red flags go up. But then the way that Moses describes Abel's offering does make, bing, bing, like a couple little red flags go up. Well, what, hey, well, why didn't you say that about Cain? You know, well, what, What's going on? Maybe, okay, it's, give us a little insight here. Because it says... Uh, And Abel, maybe following in, maybe he saw his brother do it and thought, hmm, I better offer, better, better bring an offering to the Lord. Or maybe they were just both inclined to do it. But Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Now again, you just would not probably raise any red flags until you hear Moses describe Abel's by saying he brings the firstborn. And the fat portions. And so immediately you say, okay, so Abel is clearly bringing the first and the best to the Lord. Whereas Cain, all we were told, if you go back and look, is that he brought of the fruit of the ground. Now again, people often get thrown off here as to why Abel's sacrifice is accepted and why Cain's is not. And I'm not sure where it begins and maybe there are commentators who take different positions on this, but oftentimes it will be said that the reason why Abel's sacrifice is accepted is because it was a blood sacrifice, and the reason Cain's is not accepted is because it's of the, 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 you know, it's, it's of the crops, and it's sin sacrifices can only be blood, and, and therefore his, you know, he gave the right thing, and he did, but I, I, I don't agree with that because I don't see that anywhere in the text. There, there's, there's no command to make sin offerings. We don't have that until much later in the Torah. We don't have any, any command to do this. You might argue, I had a friend argue with me uh, actually a couple weeks ago um, about this very text, believe it or not, uh, just arguing that, well, because of what God did in Genesis three, when he cut the animal and, and put it, he, he laid the groundwork to say that the only way you can be acceptable to me is through the killing of an animal. But okay, but that, that seems like a little bit of a stretch to say then that there was a command embedded in that to make sacrifices that way. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. Now, maybe I'll get to heaven one day and find out. Spanjur, you were way off on this. And, th- and this this very transcript uh, will be brought back to me. But, but uh, as of now, I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think it's because Cain, uh, uh, Abel brought a blood sacrifice and Cain brought, a plant offering. It doesn't even say it was a sacrifice. It just said it was an offering. It's an offering up to the Lord for his goodness, for his provision. That doesn't seem to be what the problem is here. The problem, it seems to be, is a matter of the heart. Something's rotten in Cain's heart. You say, well, how do you know? Well, read the rest of the story. It comes out pretty clearly. Something, there's a seed of rottenness in the heart of Cain that the Lord exposes as he rejects Cain's sacrifice. And that little bit of rottenness, if you will, that seed of disease there in Cain's heart is manifested when we compare his his offering to his brothers because, again, it's just he gives of the fruit of the ground. Almost as if, look, I know I got to do this. Your mom and dad taught me that we need to be thankful for what God provides. So Lord, I'll grab up some of the scraps here and I go and I give thanks here. Lord, thank you for what you've given me and I hope we'll have a good harvest next year. Whereas Abel, we're told again, gives the firstborn and he gives the best. He gives of the fat portion to the Lord. Now, again, we have to be careful here on the other side. We want to be careful not to say, well, the Lord only accepts our sacrifices when we give the best. If you give the best, then you give him what's acceptable. And if you don't, then it's not acceptable. So the Lord has very high standards here and he only accepts the best. No, that's, that's not necessarily true either. But again, what they give and how they give does reveal something about their heart. That Abel seems to be coming with a heart of real gratitude, a heart of real thankfulness and gives, if you will, inappropriate sacrifice. Don't forget when Moses later will detail what kind of offerings they are to give. There is an appropriate offering here to give from your plant harvest. It's called the offering of the first fruits. That you take the first and the best and you give it to the Lord because we acknowledge, Lord, you have given this. We, we give back an acknowledgement of what you have given to us. It's what we say when we give our offerings too. Why the idea of a tithe, for example, is supposed to be off the first 10%. Because we acknowledge right off the top, Lord, this is yours. We, we acknowledge that. And the fact that Cain is not seems to represent, again, a problem of the heart. Not so much a problem of the actual material that he gives. Abel's sacrifice or offering, we're told at least in the book of Hebrews, is an offering of faith. This is what uh, Hebrews 11 verse 4 says. You know, this is in uh, um, the author of Hebrews' Hall of Faith. By faith, Abel offered God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, though, it be, though he being dead, he still speaks. So the author of Hebrews says that Abel's sacrifice was by faith. That Abel is coming with real and genuine faith, and that faith in the Lord And in his promises and in his goodness is represented in the fact that he gives off the top, right? He gives the first. He gives the first fruit, the firstborn, and he gives the best of it. The difference between the two sacrifices is one of faith. Cain is going through the ritual, right? Cain is going, Cain is a religious guy. Cain is a guy who goes through the motions. He shows up on Sunday because it's what you do. He offers his offering because it's what mom and dad said you'd do. So fine, I offer, I give the offering and I expect that the Lord, if I do my part, then the Lord will do his part in the coming year and in the coming harvest. Abel seems, and at least it's testified, to be giving his offering out of sincerity of heart, by faith, acknowledging, Lord, it's all yours. Here, take the best. Take the first of what I have. So first... The offering and the distinction between them. The what of the offering and the the why one is accepted and one is rejected. Well, the Lord rejects Cain's. And then Cain, we're told, becomes very angry. Notice, the Lord does not accept his offering. And rather than shaking in his boots, or rather than falling on his face, rather than humbling himself and and asking the Lord, Why, Lord? Tell me why. Obviously, I would like to fix what I need to fix. If there's something I need to do or a change in my disposition or in my heart, tell me why my offering is not acceptable to you. No. Again, now the seed of bitterness, the seed of disease, if you will, has water poured on it, and it begins to grow. Now we're seeing it manifest itself. And so he's filled with anger. And this brings us to the second point, then, the warning. The Lord is gracious to Cain. He comes to Cain. He doesn't just say, unacceptable, get out of my presence. He refuses to accept it, given then the, this sort of transactional, um, ritualistic, going through the motions business of Cain. The Lord, in his grace, I think, does not accept it. We're not playing by those rules. This isn't how it works. You just throw something on the table. I accept it because, you know, I need to be fed or I need to be satisfied and then I'll bless you in some transactional return. No, I'm not accepting it. Cain walks away bitter and angry. But then notice in verse 6, the Lord comes to Cain. He doesn't just blow Cain off. He comes back, Cain, why are you angry? He he engages him. Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? That is, if you, if you handle this rightly, and we know what rightly means because we saw what happened with Abel. By faith, he offered a better sacrifice. If you do well, Cain, if you humble yourself, if you repent, if you trust in me and in my promises, will you not be accepted? But then the warning. But if not, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it we actually use this verse this is what prompted the conversation with one of my colleagues because we gave this verse for our we break our students into discipleship groups prayer groups you know guys with the boys and ladies with the girls and and so i got about 10 guys and they're my discipleship group and we meet every tuesday and so I gave this text to them a few weeks ago because I wanted, I wanted our faculty to spend time on this metaphor with the kids. If you do not do well, sin is creeping at your door and its desire is for you. It wants you. And you ought to master it or else it's going to destroy you. And it's a wonderful and beautiful metaphor, an intimidating metaphor of sin like a a burglar or or some kidnapper or or some thug that's outside your door, just creeping down, waiting for you to come out. And it's going to attack you. It's going to take you down. Its desire is for you. So you ought to master it. Gear up. Prepare, Cain. And that's not just a metaphor that our students need. It's a metaphor you and I need. Imagine if we woke up every morning and we heard that verse ringing in our ear that we thought when I walk out this door, sin is creeping, waiting to take me down. And I ought to gear up right now. If you knew that there was a bad guy outside your door waiting to tackle you when you walked out and to destroy you, what would you do? How would you prepare for that? How would you arm yourself? Who would you call for help? To prepare for this, well, the, God is saying to Cain, "That's your situation right now." John Owen once said, once wrote, "In this battle of sin, either you will be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There's no in between. There's no like part. There's, there, there's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. Either sin's killing you, or you're killing sin. But it is mortal combat." And that's what God is telling Cain. You better gear up, son, for mortal combat because sin is crouching at your door and it desires you. Repent and you will do well. Turn and you'll be accepted. Notice there's there's nothing to earn here. There's nothing to accomplish. It's just turn. It's just acknowledge like Cain did, or Abel, excuse me. Have faith. Trust in me and my promises. There's nothing transactional about this. Turn to me, and everything you need is given. But if you do not, then sin is crouching at your door, and it wants to have you. Brothers and sisters, there's a word for us here, too. I promise you, right now, sin is crouching at my door. Sin is crouching at your door, too. And we ought to have lenses. I I would encourage you to let that be one of the governing metaphors in your life to think of sin. Every time you walk out the door, when you get up out of bed, when you leave this sanctuary, to think sin is right out there creeping at the door and it wants you. All the worries of this world are waiting right outside that door and they want to take you down. So what are you going to do? Who are you going to call for help? You know, I remember John Piper preaching on this one time, and really, I just loved the way he went after it, because he was like, you call the police. Like, if you knew there was a bad guy out there, you'd call the police. You'd call, the, you'd call your boys to get over and help you out. So who are you calling? Who are you engaging? Who are you asking for help? How are you arming yourself? What scripture? How are you wielding your sword in preparation, training for the minute you've got to walk out of there and deal with this enemy? So Cain gets a warning. So first we have the offering, secondly we have the warning, and third, of course, we have the sin. Cain does not master it. Cain cannot master it. He's overcome by it. It masters him. And he goes out, we're told, and talks with his brother, and then finally slays his brother. And now for Eve, who thought perhaps maybe it was so simple, now sees, oh boy, the story just got a lot more complicated. Now, the one who was supposed to be the seed of the woman proves out to be the seed of the serpent, in fact. And kills his righteous and acceptable brother. But now we do get a window into the rest of the story. That however that promise of Genesis 3.15 is going to work itself out, that the seed of the woman, that God will restore enmity, and that he'll put enmity between the two seeds, and the one will crush the head, and the one will bruise the heel, we now realize it's going to be more complicated than we thought And it's going to come through a lot of hostility and a lot of conflict. And we know that we're just at the very seed form. This is going to work itself out all through the history of Israel. And it's going to climax, of course, at Golgotha and there at the cross. Where what seemed like it could just be an easy victory. The, the, The seed of the woman just crushes the head of the serpent and takes a bruising on the heel. We now realize, wow. Or at least we get an indication that, wow, that bruising on the heel might be a lot worse than I thought. I mean, Abel is killed by his brother. And Cain, he just gets a mark on the forehead. He's actually preserved by God. He, he, he's exiled, to be sure. But he's actually preserved in, in God's you know, inscrutable mercy. And Abel lies dead. The battle between the seeds is a battle that will characterize all of history. From the time of Cain and Abel, right up to Golgotha, through Golgotha, to the church and Rome, and then throughout there and to the rest of the world's story. It's still going on to this day. And we hear little rumblings of it here and there, but we see it more graphically in other places as we watch brothers and sisters executed for their faith or imprisoned for their faith or losing their businesses for their faith. This very battle is the complex battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it's worked out here in what looks as an unpredictable way between Cain and Abel. The Lord comes to Cain and says, like he did with Adam and Eve, ask them questions. What have you done? Where is your brother? Just like he asked them, where are you guys? Where is your brother? So here we go again. Now we see the sin in the Garden of Eden, right? Like father, like son. But it did again, it didn't look so bad in the garden. It just looked like the picking of a fruit. But we've already said, yeah, but that sin, if you let that culture grow to its full, full size, it looks like Golgotha. And now we start to get an indication of how it looks more like Golgotha, right? From one generation it's the picking of a fruit to the next generation, it's the killing of a brother. And the Lord asking the questions just draws attention back to sort of here we go again. We're in the same story, the same rebellion against God. Where's your brother? What am I, my brother's keeper? (laughs) Talks to God that way? Well, I'm my brother's keeper, and the Lord says, "His blood cries out to me from the ground, Cain. What have you done?" John says in First John, he says, "You can't say you love God and you hate your brother. Right? You can't say you love God and you hate your brother." Love for God and love for brother are united to the one. You can't love the God you don't see and hate your brother who you do see. This is the point John makes. What is this murder of his brother? The hatred he has for his brother is just the incarnating of his hatred for his God. And again, when God finally comes as his brother, they'll kill him too. When God becomes the brother... When God becomes man, they claim, oh, oh, the people, oh, we have great love for God. Yeah, but you hate your brother Jesus when he comes, and you execute him. You can't say you love God and you hate your brother. Here at the very beginning of the story, we see this hatred for the brother, which ultimately depicts a hatred for God. You might not have eyes to see it, but this is why the sacrifice is unacceptable not going to be acceptable from one who hates God and who hates his brother. The offering, the warning, the sin, and then finally the exile. The exile. Here Cain now is kicked out. Cain whines about this. Imagine, you know, Cain is some character. You know, not only does he snap back at God, what am I, my brother's keeper? The Lord then kicks him out of the land, basically excommunicates him. And as he goes, Cain says, whoa, 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 hey, this is overkill. You put me out there. Whoever finds me will kill me. I'm I'm sort of out from the community of my my brothers. So on the one hand, he says, I'm not my brother's keeper. But now he's whining because his brothers, his family can't keep him. What am I going to do out here? I, I have no protection. And the Lord, again, in his inscrutable and mysterious mercy, puts a mark on Cain that will protect him so that whoever kills him uh, would receive sevenfold judgment. But Cain is exiled from the presence of the family and from the covenant, if you will, community. And we can assume then that there was a door open to him to come back, but it would be the same as was before, that he must repent, humble himself, and come back into the family, like anyone who is excommunicated. Now, what do we do with this story, and how do we... How do we drive ourselves forward to Jesus Christ? Well, we know that the battle here, this battle that we see between Cain and Abel is in very seed form, the story of the rest of the scriptures and the story of the rest of time. When you get to the book of Revelation and, the, and John gives us this grand cosmic vision of the, of, of the history of the world between the first and second coming of Christ, it looks like this story. It's the beast seeking to kill the lamb. It's the, it's the serpent coming to try to kill the church, the bride, the, whoever. The same cosmic battle is afoot. But what I want us to pick up on, and I entitled the sermon, A Blood That Speaks Better Things, comes from the reading that Mark uh, read to us from Hebrews chapter 12. Where the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 is saying to a people who are anxious to kind of turn back the clock, and go back and live in an Old Testament reality with their nice little shadows, with their nice little temple, and with their nice little priesthood, and with their nice little sacrifices. All their little monopoly pieces are all in place. right? They want their monopoly money. They want their little prototypes. And the author of Hebrews in the whole book is saying, no, no, you've got the reality now. The shadows go away. The little toys go away. You now have the real deal in Jesus Christ. He is the true priest. He's the true temple. He's the true sacrifice. He's the true promised land. He's the true giver of rest. He's the true everything. You've come to a better place. You're not coming to Mount Sinai anymore where if you touch it, you will die. Now you're coming to Zion. You're coming to the assembly of the saints gathered before the throne of God. And you come in a new blood. You're sprinkled and cleansed by a new blood. Not the blood of sacrifices, but as he says in Hebrews 11, a blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. It's interesting that the author of Hebrews links now to this covenant community the sacrifice of Jesus all the way back with the blood of Abel. It speaks better things than the blood of Abel? What do you think the blood of Abel spoke? Well, remember, in our text here, it it tells us the blood of Abel cries out to him. Verse 10, and he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What is Abel's blood crying out to God? It's crying out to God, Cain is guilty. Cain is a murderer. Cain has killed his brother. Cain is a brother hater. Cain is a God hater. Abel's blood cries out accusation from the ground. And God has heard it. And he comes to Cain and confronts him. Your brother's blood condemns you. Where's your brother? I don't know where he is. Well, his blood condemns you. It's crying out to me, accusing you, and you are guilty. But the author of Hebrews says, but there's another blood. There's a blood of the greater Abel, who though he was murdered by his brothers, his blood also cries out. But it cries out something much better. The blood of this brother cries out you are forgiven you are forgiven you are cleansed you are renewed you are accepted you are redeemed how could it be how could the blood of the murdered brother cry out to the father justified accepted forgiven what a better blood what a better message it's shocking We, the murderers, have a blood, the blood of the one that we executed that cries out for our deliverance and our renewal. He himself is exiled on our behalf so that we, the murderers, might remain in the camp so that we can remain at home with the Father. I mean, the story of Jesus Christ is the overturning of the story of Cain and Abel. And his blood cries out much better things than the condemnation of the blood of Abel. No offense to Abel, but there was no relief. Abel cannot grant the forgiveness that Cain needs. All his blood can do is condemn him. But Jesus Christ has the power to take the murder, to take the sin of Cain, the sin of the nations, the sin of Adam and Eve, to take it all upon himself and pay for it so that his blood, now having paid for it, can call out better things and call out for our forgiveness and our renewal. As we look forward to the season of Advent, even through the story of Cain and Abel, let our hearts look forward with great anticipation, not only to the celebration of the birth of our Savior, but to his coming again. And let us know as we look forward to his coming again that we are covered by a blood that calls out to God for our forgiveness, and it has secured it. And therefore, we look forward to his second coming with great anticipation. Now, remember, sin is waiting out that door for you. And it wants to distract you and it wants to destroy you. It wants to get you to stop trusting him and to start trusting yourself. It wants to dominate you in a million different ways. But, brothers and sisters, I encourage you this morning to listen, to listen to the blood that calls out much better things than the blood of Abel, that tells you you are forgiven, that points you forward to a hope that you have a certain, a rock-solid hope that you have in the future. Let that be your strength and armed and equipped with that, with that hope, with that truth, with that sword, and bound together as a community of brothers and sisters who have one another's back and who don't let us get distracted, who call us to each other. We just said in in Ben's vows when he, he... He's coming in the office of deacon. And yet similar to the same vows we take as members. Do you vow to subject yourself to the brethren? Why do we do that? We do that because we're our brother's keepers. We do that because we got each other's backs. We do that because we know that sin is lurking out that door and wants to destroy us. And we're not going to let it happen because we're going to keep pointing our eyes to Jesus Christ. And we're going to keep pointing our brothers and sisters' eyes to Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. That's the battle we're in. And this is our weapon. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is our sword. That hope is the truth by which we must arm ourselves as we go into the battle that awaits us. So in this Advent season, brothers and sisters, let us arm ourselves and equip ourselves by looking forward to the gift of our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God slain and whose blood cries out so much better things than the condemning blood of Abel and all the blood which we have shed metaphorically, Father, in our sin, which stands to condemn us. Satan, the great accuser, uh, 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 points out our sin. And yet, Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, which calls out for our forgiveness, our justification, our reconciliation, our acceptance with you so that by faith we are righteous. So Lord, we give you praise and thanks, and in this Advent season, focus us and fix us upon him, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.